Chapter 7 Reactionary Cliques Among Armed Forces and Police The majority of Africa's armed forces and police came into existence as part of the colonial coercive apparatus. Few of their members joined national liberation struggles. For the most part, they were employed to perform police operations against it. In the colonial period, most of the officers were European. At independence, when Africanization policies were put into operation, many Africans who were not really qualified to become officers received commissions because of the lack of suitable candidates. A large number were men who had held educational positions in the army, and were drawn from among the educated petty bourgeoisie. The educated petty bourgeoisie. These, and other older officers at present serving in Africa's armies, were trained by the colonialists or in military colleges of the West, and are therefore oriented towards Western norms and ideals. They may be said to form, because of their rank, part of the bureaucratic bourgeoisie, with a stake in the capitalist path of development. Some of the younger officers, probably in their school days, took part in the liberation struggle, and are therefore accessible to socialist revolutionary ideology. But although some of them have become supporters of the African Revolution, the majority of higher officers have succumbed to the same bourgeois indoctrination as their older fellow officers. They are closely linked socially and in background and aspirations with the bureaucratic bourgeoisie and with the reactionary officer elites in other countries. In many cases, the officer class and the civil servants have shared similar educational experience in elite schools and colleges in Africa and overseas. They have developed similar outlooks and interests. They tend to distrust change and to worship the organizations and institutions of capitalist bourgeois society. Even the younger generation of officers and bureaucrats who share power in many African states as a result of military coups are steeped in attitudes and concepts which reflect the socio-political climate of the colonial period. When neocolonial coups take place, members of the armed forces, the police, and the bureaucracy work together. This is not to say that they necessarily sit down together and plot coups, though this has sometimes been the case. But they have common interests and each needs the other. Bureaucrats alone cannot overthrow the government, and the military and police have not the expertise to administer a country. Therefore, they combine and bring about a state of affairs strikingly similar to that which operated in colonial times, when the colonial government depended on the civil service, on the army and police, and on the support of traditional rulers. In almost every case where a coup has taken place, there has been no mass participation, Workers and peasants are betrayed and coerced, and the clock put back to the conditions of colonialism. The power of reactionary traditional rulers is reinstated. The heavy reliance on the police in new colonialist states is another reminder of the colonial period. Police officers, unlike army officers, are, by the very nature of their work, in closer touch with the people. At the time of a coup, they are in a position to know exactly which elements to arrest and where they should be confined. They know how to organize and to control riots and demonstrations. In many cases, 
police officers have themselves been involved in corruption. They are familiar with all aspects of crime and do not shrink from any methods to obtain their ends. Like their counterparts in the armed forces, they have close links with the bureaucratic bourgeoisie. The rank and file of army and police are from the peasantry. A large number are illiterate. They have been taught to obey orders without question and have become tools of bourgeois capitalist interests. They are thus alienated from the peasant worker struggle to which through their class origins they really belong. While to obey orders without question is a fundamental requirement of the ordinary soldier in most professional armies, it becomes extremely dangerous when those in a position to give orders serve the interests of only a small, privileged section of society. It means that the rank-and-file soldier or policeman can be used to bring about and to maintain reactionary regimes. In this, the ordinary soldier, who is after all only a worker or peasant in uniform, is acting against the interests of his own class. The solution to the problem lies in the politicizing of army and police. Both must be firmly under the control of the Socialist Revolutionary Party and commissions entrusted only to those who are fully committed to revolutionary socialist principles. At the same time, the discipline of the ordinary soldier and policeman must be based on understanding and not on submissiveness and blind obedience. The mercenary aspect of military and police service should be ended and the citizens' army and people's militia created. Workers, peasants, soldiers, and policemen must work together. They belong to the same class and aspire to the same socialist revolution. Compared with other socialist organizations, the army and police are more disciplined, mobile, and technically equipped. Most important, they are armed provide, therefore, a ready striking force. The use made of them depends on the ascendancy of this or that political trend within society and the pressures, both internal and external, brought to bear on those in positions of command. When the army intervenes in politics, it does so as part of the class forces in society. Coups d'etat are expressions of the class struggle and the struggle between imperialism and socialist revolution. The army, after it has seized power, gives its way to one or other side. In this respect, the army is not merely an instrument of struggle, but becomes itself part of the class struggle, thus tearing down the artificial wall separating it from the socio-economic and political transformations in society. The theory of the neutrality of the armed forces consistently propagated by the exploiting classes, is thereby proved to be false. The army, when it intervenes in the political life of a country, represents the dominant class interest of the small minority of those who organize and actually carry out the intervention. Presented with a fait accompli, the large majority of officers and men acquiesced. In Africa, Although there may have been a few coups which may be said to have paved the way for less reactionary regimes, by far the majority of them have been engineered by bourgeois-oriented officers who have had close links with the bureaucratic bourgeoisie and with neocolonialists. Their joint aim is to protect capitalism and to frustrate the purposes of the African Socialist Revolution. In some areas of Africa, where army intervention has been proclaimed as revolutionary socialist, 
It has, in fact, been merely nationalist. The proclaimed aim is to end foreign exploitation and to improve the conditions of the people. Foreign firms are in some cases nationalized, and foreign bases are closed down, but the conditions of the ordinary people remain practically the same as before the intervention. In place of foreign exploitation, there is exploitation by the indigenous bourgeoisie. In no time, puppet regimes are installed. The country is in the grip of neocolonialism and the bourgeoisie, either represented by stooge politicians or by bourgeois-minded army and police officers, is further entrenched. It is only when power is seized by workers and peasants that genuine socialist revolution can be achieved. Immense sums of money have been spent on the upkeep of Africa's armies. The Congolese army, for example, received one-sixth of the state's revenue during the first four and a half years of independence. That is, it received some 25 billion out of 150 billion Congolese francs, and provisions of revenue budgets for 1967 to 68 in Francophone Africa, eight out of 15 states had provided the army with between 15 and 25 percent of their resources. Mali, Guinea, Chad, and Cameroon were prepared to devote up to one quarter of their budgets for military purposes. In general, officers' salaries are kept near to expatriate level, and therefore vast differences in personal status and power exist between officers and men. The gap is much wider than between officers and men in Europe, the USA, and elsewhere. In Africa, the differential between the pay of a lieutenant colonel and a recruit is 10 or 15 times greater than in Europe and America. The artificially high social status of the African officer class has the effect of heightening the already overbearing, arrogant attitude which so many of them possess. To some extent, even the rank and file of army and police consider themselves to be a kind of elite. They usually earn more than clerks and other similar white-collar workers. The developing practice of appointing army officers to high diplomatic posts when they are no longer required in the army, is also an indication of the inflated position they occupy in African society. There is little justification for the enormous sums of money spent on the armies of Africa. Africa is not threatened territorially by any outside power. The border disputes which exist between certain African states, most of them legacies from the colonial period, are all capable of peaceful solution. The struggles to end the remnants of colonialism and settler domination are not being fought by professional armies, but by guerrilla forces. If only a fraction of the amount spent by most states on their professional forces was diverted to support and equip African freedom fighters, the result would be a tremendous quickening of the pace of the African Revolution. The only valid reason which could justify the creation of large conventional armed forces is the vital necessity to achieve the objectives of the African Revolution, that is, the political unification of Africa, for which a unified all-African high command is an essential prerequisite. When faced with a political crisis, the army tends to split along the same lines as the political community. 
In other words, it tends to divide along lines of class and sometimes tribe. The officer strata tends to be, on the whole, conservative, if not downright reactionary. It will usually side with the old established order. Historically, professional armies of the capitalist world have a tradition of suppression of socialist and revolutionary movements. They are the instruments of the ruling class or classes for maintaining bourgeois power. Compared with the armies of Europe, Asia, and North and South America, the armies of Africa are relatively small in size. Only three countries south of the Sahara, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Congo Kinshasa have armies exceeding 10,000 men. 14 African states have armies of less than 2,000 men. Yet, because of the small population of many of the independent states and their non-viable economies, the maintaining of these armies places an intolerable burden on the state. Furthermore, because the armies of Africa are, for the most part, under the, under the control of officers who have interests in common with the bureaucratic bourgeoisie and with neocolonialism, they have been able to exert an influence on the political life of the continent out of. Furthermore, because the armies of Africa are, for the most part, under the control of officers who have interests in common with the bureaucratic bourgeoisie and the neocolonialism, they have been able to exert an influence on the political life of the continent out of all proportion to their size. They are dependent to a large extent for supplies, equipment, and training on foreign help, most of it from the capitalist world. In 1964, there were 3,000 French and 600 British military experts in Africa. 1,500 Africans were sent to France for military training and 700 to Britain. Some 14 African states have agreements with Israel for training of armies and for supply of arms. Recently, the Federal Republic of Germany has concluded agreements for the provision of experts and other forms of military aid with seven African states in the major strategic areas of Africa. Meantime, the USA, as its business interests develop in Africa, is stepping up its military and intelligence network, thereby exerting heavy pressures in the, in the political sphere. As long as African states continue to be dependent in any degree for training and for arms and supplies on capitalist sources, the African Revolution is in jeopardy. It is not without significance that there have been no coups in countries where expatriate officers still exist in the armed forces. Although relatively small in numbers, they are able to prevent any change in the status quo by virtue of the fact that they represent the military strength of the foreign power on whom the indigenous government depends for its security.